have to flick the off switch every time I cough. I'm going to be <laughs> in trouble. I encourage you after the service to greet Dan and um, to start to get to know him if you had a chance to do that yet. Um, and uh, so if you're curious about the session, which is our Council of Elders, uh, as you leave, those of you who are here in the building with me, you can check out the bulletin board right by the front door, which has pictures of all of our elders. Normally I feel a bit lonely when people aren't in the first couple of rows, but I'm glad there's no one there this morning. <laughs> so today we come to the heart of Paul's focus on the church as the body of Christ. We've been using that as the title for our series in 1 Corinthians, One Body in a Divided World, we've called this exploration of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And in chapter 12, which we're looking at today, Paul starts to take us from division to unity. And over the next three chapters, he's going to address the spiritual things which preoccupied a certain faction in the church in Corinth, and which, when they're understood rightly, are critical to the church's flourishing. In chapter 12, he's going to put the gifts of the Spirit in proper context. That's where we are today. Next week in chapter 13, he points to love, which is really the climax of his whole letter, love as the most excellent way, love as the air we breathe um, as Christians and in the church as we respond to God's call. And then in chapter 14, he's going to get more specific about uh, some of the abuses of gifting and problems causing division in Corinth. So this is a long chapter, and we're going to read it in two parts. We'll start with verses 1 to 11, but let's pray before we do that. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts, the reflections of our minds this morning, be acceptable and pleasing to you, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm pleased that Allison is going to help me out with the reading as I try to preserve my voice a little. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 11. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. I was about to say when I was in grade 11, but I'll leave that to you. 
when I was in grade 11. Um, so when I was a teenager, I had some angst about what I was going to do with my life. I don't know if any of you who are teenagers now or, or can remember those days can relate to that. And uh, so one day I, I found out that, when I was in grade 11, I found out that um, we were going to do a skills and career assessment as a whole class. And so I was eager to get the results of this test. I thought this would help me figure out the rest of my life. And so the test was designed to identify our particular strengths and to project them along a career path. So we completed the test and, and waited. And when the results came in, I was surprised. I was surprised to learn that I was extremely gifted in administration. <laughs> and that my most likely future job was zookeeper. <laughs> Let's just say it wasn't a prophetic moment in my life. Now, you may have encountered tests like this in the church world, too. They focus on spiritual gifts rather than on future career possibilities. My wife, Judith, once took a spiritual gifts inventory test with the youth group at her Baptist church in Toronto. Predictably enough, there was a lot of diversity in the results, different gifts showing up, but the whole group was intrigued when the youth pastor told them that they had all scored high in one particular area of gifting. Apparently, they all had the gift of martyrdom. <laughs> I'm not sure that all the parents were thrilled to get that result. So when it comes to gifts, we're all curious. We want to know who we are, and what we're good at is a big part of that. As Christians, we know as our baseline that we are in Christ. That is our primary identity. But beyond that, what's our calling? What purpose does God have for our lives? So Paul gives us an answer here in chapter 12. He says that we are all part of one body. We are together in Christ. And that we have been given different gifts which are all for the common good. So Paul makes three initial points here. First of all, he says the Spirit establishes the centrality of Christ, that Jesus is Lord, and that that is foundational to all the gifts. Secondly, he says the gifts of the Spirit are not ours. You know, we often think of gifts, our gifts, our abilities. They come from us. We develop them. But in this case, Paul's very clear that these kinds of gifts we receive only. They come by grace and they're meant for service. And then finally, he lists some of the gifts. So Paul begins with trademark irony, which is sometimes hard for us to pick up on. He says, now about the gifts of the Spirit. So again, he's responding to something that was raised in a letter that the Corinthian Christians had written to him. He says, now about these gifts, I don't want you to be uninformed. That's a joke. Maybe not a laugh out loud joke. But Paul is taking the obsession that some Christians in Corinth had with knowledge, with knowing things. There was a group that thought they knew everything about spiritual gifts, and it seems like he's testing their sense of humor. The next thing he does is he tests the spirits. We've seen in the past how the city of Corinth was full of temples to a multitude of gods, lords, and idols. People had a dizzying array of spiritual options. 
They could combine different kinds of worship and mix and match their pleasures. But Paul reassures the Christians that they are set apart and not on the basis of some gift they might possess either. No, he says it's the Spirit who empowers us to make what is the most basic profession of faith, a declaration of who we are, a connection to God himself, and that is three simple words, Jesus is Lord. Now, we confessed our faith earlier. Dan did first, and then we all did. But it was longer than that. Jesus is Lord was the first and most basic declaration on the part of Christians that that is who they trusted in, that that is where their loyalty lay. For new believers in Corinth, especially those who weren't part of this super spiritual faction in the church, I can only imagine this was a great encouragement. You don't have to know a bunch of theology, Paul's saying. You don't have to have a certain level of emotional intensity or self-assurance or possess certain qualities or abilities to be confident that Jesus is Lord of your life and that the Holy Spirit is within you, enabling you to say that and equipping you for what lies ahead. It really doesn't get any simpler than saying Jesus is Lord. And when you say that and believe it, God pours his spirit into you. Not always how you expect it or want it, but the spirit is with you, always. So sometimes I talk to people who doubt their salvation, who doubt that they're a Christian. This is a word of reassurance from Paul, that it is simple and it is about acknowledgement, saying Jesus is Lord and trusting him though we struggle in that. So that's short and sweet as a confession, but radical and dangerous too. To say that Jesus is Lord was to say that Caesar, the Roman emperor, was not Lord. And that meant, in Corinth at that time, cutting yourself off from the imperial cults of the city and all the benefits they offered, networking, connections, opportunities for commerce, it meant being vulnerable and isolated. It meant being the nail that sticks out and may get hammered in. So two questions for us then. First, whether or not you consider yourself to be a mature Christian, have you welcomed the Holy Spirit into your life? Do you pray to the Spirit? I think a lot of us are comfortable with God the Father creator of all. Jesus is familiar too, of course. But sometimes we may neglect the Spirit. But Paul reminds us that it's through the Spirit that the most precious gifts come to us, gifts that fill in the emptiness we, we may be feeling, the gaps that we wonder about that are there in our faith, in our experience of the Christian life. And so we have to learn to keep in step with the Spirit, to cultivate a relationship with Him, to stop and listen as He guides us into all truth. And I want to suggest just a really simple way of doing that this week, that uh, as you start your day, ask the Holy Spirit to use you, to use your giftedness to love someone. And that's a short prayer, and as you pay attention to your day, I promise you that God will show up in ways that you did not expect.
The second thing that Paul is saying here is that as we proclaim Jesus is Lord, he's asking us how we fit into the culture around us. So Caesar is not Lord. That's a lie. Jesus is Lord. But what does that look like for us in Guelph? Are we even alert to the spiritual influences in our lives that come into our homes in so many ways? The high school I went to in Toronto uh, was a French school, and it had the motto, connaissance est false, which means knowledge is strength or knowledge is power. And so we were taught as teenagers to pursue knowledge in order to get the power to achieve great things in our lives. And there was a veneer of trying to be a good person on top of that, but the deeper truth that was imparted to us was the truth of ambition and success. And mostly the focus was on self-interest and getting ahead. And not by being a zookeeper either. That really, I don't know, that was a total outlier. So if Caesar is Lord, and that is a belief, a confidence in the powers that be, powers that are apart from God, then ultimately our ethics, the way we must live, are about power are about making a name for ourselves, about proving ourselves, about the weight that lies on our shoulders as we go through life. But the Holy Spirit says that real power comes from Jesus and then gives us what we need, the faith to say Jesus is Lord, to know who we truly are, that we are free in Christ, and then to live it out by serving others, by putting their interests before our own. But the problem in Corinth was that a group of people in the church had lost sight of that service, of the humility that God requires to us, that really is the essential way that leads to God. They had these special gifts and powers that made them feel superior to other people. And so Paul addresses this in verse 4 with a subtle shift. He starts using a different Greek word for gift. He called them pneumaticon earlier, but now he switches to charismata. And the change matters because the root of this word charismata is charis, which means grace. So Paul is saying here, you have it all wrong about gifts. These gifts are not your own. They only come to you from the grace of God. They're from him and they come to you freely. You haven't done anything to deserve them. You haven't entered into some training regimen. You haven't mustered the self-discipline to achieve this. You're gifted by grace alone. And so one translation calls these grace gifts. I like that. Paul also says that there are many different kinds of gifts, that no one has a monopoly. And next, he trots out the word service as a parallel to gift. And there's a real parallelism here, which this slide illustrates. It turns out that's what they're for. Gifts are for service. And then finally, they work in different ways. So it's diversity upon diversity upon diversity, but all united by the same God, three in one, the same Spirit, the same Lord, that is Jesus, and the same Father in heaven. So God himself is diverse in his nature, and we have both unity and diversity at the divine heart of the universe. And we need to reflect that, and we do, as we are faithful to the call to be the body of Christ. Unity and shalom, this Hebrew word that means peace, but even more wholeness, unity in God is his essential attribute. 
but also the diversity of the Trinity. And that's reflected in us in the diversity of gifts. Not uniform, not identical. Churches that are homogenous, and we see this happening more and more in the evangelical world, are churches in trouble, are churches that have strayed from the diversity that we're called to. The church needs diversity to be healthy. And not every church will have every kind of diversity, but churches that pursue a homogenous identity in order to be strong, in order to circle the wagons, uh, are not heeding the guidance of the Spirit. And we've said it repeatedly through this series. We need unity in the essentials, diversity in the non-essentials, and charity or love in all things. If there was any room left for doubt, Paul makes it clear in verse 7. He says, To each one the Spirit is given as a gift for the common good. Everyone has a gift. Everyone has a part to play. And that's not meant to be a burden. Allison and Justin and I were talking about uh, how do you call people to pursue gifts that the Holy Spirit gives without it being a guilt trip? You know, without me saying from up here, oh, you need to do more. You, you need to step up and all the, the guilt that can go along with that. Um, Rather than seeing this as a burden, something we have to do, I want to invite you to see it as a promise. When we approach church as something that we receive, kind of as a consumer, when we're looking to get our needs met in the subtle way that language creeps into how we talk about church, we inevitably find ourselves remaining at a distance, in a kind of solitude. But when you stop consuming and start serving, you find the freedom and the friendship that God wants you to enjoy within the body of Christ. We receive the gifts of the Spirit in all their diversity by grace in order to serve others. Now, it's easier to stand off at a distance. I remember the first time I did the Myers-Briggs test. Anyone here done a Myers-Briggs test? There's a few hands. Enneagram testing seems to have kind of taken over, but... Um, it was the first time I'd ever done a personality test, and I was skeptical. I thought it was kind of like the horoscope, you know, I was, I was really not into it. But I had to do it for my job. Um, my expectations were decidedly low, however. I found out that day that I'm an ENFP, extrovert, intuitive, feeling, perceiver. If I had ended up a zookeeper, I'd be the one happily giving tours to visitors from people around the world while the animals starved. <laughs> so Myers-Briggs, as a part of doing that test, um, I became aware really suddenly and, and for the first time in a distinct way of how narrowly I had focused on my own gifts and really disregarded the gifts of some of my coworkers. I don't know if you've had that experience of having your eyes opened to other people's gifts. Um, when God does that, and you see the differences and value and giftedness of other people, you start to lose your preoccupation with yourself. And that's when I think the Holy Spirit draws us into a humble recognition of others and into the opportunity to encourage them. And, and to allow the bonds um, in the body of Christ and really in whatever organization you're a part of to grow and deepen and strengthen. 
The list of gifts that we saw in verses 8 to 11 is one of five such lists we find in the New Testament. None of them are comprehensive. We don't have time this morning to talk about all the specific gifts that are mentioned here. We'll get to that uh, in a future sermon. But one obvious question here is, how do I discover my gifts? John Newton, the 18th century abolitionist and hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, suggests three criteria for seeking out what your gifts might be. Affinity, ability, and opportunity. So your affinity is what you enjoy. What do you love to do? Your ability is what you're good at. Not just school, of course, but other things. And your opportunity is the door that's open now, the need that's right in front of you. Now, normally, I think we're told to start with the first two, ability and affinity. But as we try to find our place in the body of Christ, I think we do better to begin with opportunity. Because Jesus models this for us. Jesus met needs wherever he went. And the Holy Spirit gives us gifts to do likewise, to serve the common good. So go and serve would be my encouragement to you today. Ask yourself what needs to be done around here, and then step into that opening. Listen to the announcements. I mean, there's a season for this in every one of our lives, and this may not be the season, but uh, I encourage you to be attentive to the needs in the church and needs in other places in your lives. Right now, we have a great need for people to serve in our Sunday school and nursery um, as LNA um, leaves her role as our coordinator of children's ministries. I want to encourage you to consider that, and I believe the Holy Spirit will bless you with gifts that you never could have imagined as you respond to that call. So we're going to read the second part of 1 Corinthians 12 now, or Allison is. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not st- for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it.
So Paul maps out the body of Christ for us. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And so we begin to see that the way we fit together as individuals in the church, it's not only an analogy or an image when we say the body of Christ, that that we are united with Christ in our togetherness as the church in a way that that is mysterious and really beyond our ability to grasp. But that's the promise here, that we're inseparable as we are in Christ. And so Paul says you cannot live the Christian life on your own. You can't go off and be a foot on your own. You can't strike out alone, try to make a name for yourself as an ear and leave the rest of the body behind. God has arranged the parts of the body as he wants them to be. And that is together. And so we see the kingdom of God breaking into the world. There's a harmony that ought to be realized in the church that the Holy Spirit equips us as we follow him uh, to live out. If you want to be part of the body of Christ, you need to meet in a local congregation with people who are different from you, with children and great-grandparents, with one-year-olds and 93-year-olds, with rich people and poor people, with social butterflies and those with social anxiety, and with people who come from different ethnic and cultural backgrounds who speak different languages. I sometimes have people tell me that worship services like this are not meeting their needs, that what we're doing right here isn't relational enough, that, that um, it doesn't scratch them where they itch. But this is our gathering. The Greek word is ecclesia. It's the word that's used 115 times in the New Testament for church. Our gathering, our weekly commitment to be together. And that applies just as much to those of you who are in our online congregation today. It isn't going to satisfy your criteria. But as Paul puts it, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. We need each other. And Jesus is in the business of changing our criteria, of reorienting our desires. A few years ago, I read an interview with Billy Joel. He talked about songwriting and the importance of a wonderful German word, Sitzfleisch. Don't you love that? Am I the only one? What is that? Well, sitzfleisch means literally sitting flesh. It's your backside, your posterior. You've all got it, sitzfleisch. Why don't we say it together? I know you want to. (laughs) Sitzfleisch. More generally, sitzfleisch means the power to endure or to persevere in an activity. It's staying power. Now, I'm sure most sermons on the body of Christ portray that body in action. But I want to say that for many of us, the most important first step is to get your sits flesh out on a Sunday morning. Now, obviously, the pandemic has complicated that. And it may not feel like much when you deposit your sitting flesh into one of these chairs on a weekly basis for years. But as you do that, 
you will find God's grace to be irresistible. You'll be drawn into using your gifts. For some of us, that takes more time than for others. You will make friends and you will be able to encourage people here. You will find your purpose in that. You will wake up one day and the body of Christ will no longer simply be an idea, something the preacher says or that you might read in the Bible, but there will be flesh on those bones and you will realize that you are living out that inseparability from the body of Christ. Every time we turn away from the body of Christ saying, I don't need you, which Paul illustrates here, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. It means we're not living out our purpose. And so if you want to find the way, the truth, and the life that Christianity is at its best known for, live out your calling in the body of Christ, his resurrection body. And do that in the local church. Do that in practical ways again. In Christ, though we are different, we are inseparable. I think my favorite part of this chapter are the conversations between body parts. Did you enjoy that as much as I did? When the eye complains about the hand or the head is mean to the feet? It has a Mr. Potato Head horror movie vibe to it. (laughs) Paul is trying to show us how our refusal to listen to and to recognize and care for each other is actually a denial of the reality of what God has done and what he's doing to renew the world. Yeah, there's Mr. Potato. I I didn't get the horror movie part in there, did I? Um, Paul's saying that it's actually a kind of self-defeating, self-harming rejection of the light that Jesus brings into the world when we are not willing to participate in this. But I think he's also inviting us to imagine a different kind of conversation, not between ears and feet and heads and body parts, but, but a conversation between ourselves, among ourselves, through which we encourage each other to identify and explore our gifts and to use them for the good of others. So who are you in a relationship with right now where you can talk about their gifts and how they are seeing the Holy Spirit show up in their life through the exercise of a gift? I mean, some of us like to talk about ourselves and who we are and how we're living that out. Do you have somebody who, that, who you could potentially encourage and have that kind of a conversation with? So in addition to that prayer to the Holy Spirit I mentioned earlier, I want to challenge you this week, when you have coffee with a friend, when you're even texting someone maybe, when you're talking on the phone, to consider raising the question of gifts with a friend and asking them what they're noticing about how God is developing a gift, opening a way for them to use a gift, and encourage them by telling them what you think they're good at. It's so encouraging for for me when someone says, I see this in you and I really appreciate it. Um, So to be able to do that for others is one of the ways that God, I think, fires us up as individual members of the body of Christ. And then we, in turn, need someone who can do that for us. And sometimes you have to ask. Sometimes you have to ask a friend for their wisdom about where you're at in your life, what you're doing, how you're serving, whether it's a season to step back or a season to step forward. 
That is what God created us for. When we talk about the body of Christ, I think we prefer the Easter story. It's still the season of Easter in the church calendar. Of course, we love to recognize that Jesus is risen and that death is defeated. It's good news. It's the best news there is. But Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians that also at the heart of our faith is Christ and Christ crucified. When Jesus died for us, he made it possible for us to be in communion with God, to be all together in him. He also changed the way we live. He changed our priorities. So we long for relationship and community, but we often find ourselves to be judgmental, dismissive, unforgiving, or just not motivated. But in the body of Christ, as the Holy Spirit comes alongside us, we find that those sinful, self-centered patterns that we're familiar with begin to change. And we receive healing and comfort for our suffering. We're no longer alone in the way that we once were. When one part suffers, every part suffers. The weakest link is not disregarded, but cared for and honored. We share the pain and we share the joy. I was talking to Veronica Klein yesterday um, and hearing how Jorge, her husband, who's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, is doing. And Veronica shared some very moving stories with me about the way that they have their family, but the family of Courtright Church uh, has meant so much to them over the years with Jorge's health challenges. And just in the last week or two, she said, it's been incredible. So we lift up, we honor those who suffer. And we experience this as a local body, a congregation, uh, in the way that we're part of a wider church. You heard it in Dan's ordination vows, the reference to presbyteries. We don't all know what that is, but it's a part of how we organize ourselves as a family of churches in the Presbyterian Church of Canada. And then there's the whole Church of Christ across every denomination. It is moving and tremendous to know that you can go anywhere in the world as a Christian and you will meet other Christians who you may not speak their language, you may have struggles communicating, but there is a bond, there is a togetherness in Christ. We are not alone, we are connected to each other. And most of all, we are connected to God. God who gave his only son that we would have the hope of eternal life. There's terrible pain and tragedy at the core of the Christian story. Make no mistake about it. And that is the cross. But there's also a promise, and it comes in the resurrection. We have a foretaste of that now in our mystic, sweet communion together as the body of Christ. And I hope you'll be here next week as we enact that in our celebration of the Lord's Supper. But we know that it doesn't end here. We know the church struggles but we also know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Romans. He asks, who will separate us from Jesus? Will trouble or hardship or danger? No, he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither the future nor the present, 
nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in the whole universe will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God, who gives us hope like no other. Amen. And thanks for your prayers. I, I thought I'd be coughing a lot more, so I appreciate it.